Hi, this is Philip Mora, a pastor here at Mamlaka Hill Chapel, Ruaka. Thanks for tuning in to our Sermons podcast. We are currently doing a series on the attributes of God. We pray that this sermon series will grow your love for God, nourish your soul, and increase your faith in God. And here is today's message. So today my task uh, is to take us through yet another attribute of God called the holiness of God. And like uh, Pastor David who has been taking two attributes uh, of God uh, in one sermon. I must say I do not have that superpower. So we are going only to be focusing today on the holiness of God. The word holiness is uh, no stranger to us. Perhaps uh, in every song that we have sung, uh, um, let me say most songs that we sing, there is a word holiness there. Uh, either we are saying something holy or something, uh, the holiness of God, or just referring indirectly to the holiness of God. In fact, uh, we allude to the holiness of God perhaps more times than anything else when it comes to our singing, when it comes to our preaching uh, the word of God. But what really is holiness? What does it mean when God calls us to be holy? What does it mean when God says he is holy? As we look at the attribute of him being holy. Some of us might have been called holy joes earlier. Those who were serious with their faith uh, when we were younger. Uh, high school, nini, hey, uh, holy joe, that guy is holy joe. Uh, Maura was not one of those. Uh, <laughs> So, Friday nights were a lot cash as. But yeah, in essence, we understand that holiness, probably more pointedly in our day, what we know is a quality of moral character. When someone says you are a holy man, they're talking about a holy a piousness. You, you are not tainted with sin. You are not a sinner like the rest of us. Uh, in a sense, we call you holy. More likely in our day, we have heard the word holiness, mostly, especially in the national level, from the holiness and repentance ministry. You know, where holiness is depicted as a long dress that touches the ankles. Ladies, hallelujah. And uh, cuffs that come all the way to your hands here. Not... Uh, uh, not swimwear, uh, uh, and, and there is a piousness that is expected for you to walk with when you have dressed in a manner that says, hey, this one looks like a holy person. You can tell he's holy. But is that really what holiness means? Is holiness to have your hair covered and to have no makeup on is that the indication, the true indication of holiness? Outward adornment truly might reflect an inner piousness, but not necessarily that the one who looks outwardly adorned like a holy person has a spiritual piousness. Let's begin by looking at the holiness of God. Now that we are talking about the attribute of holiness with regards to God. Throughout the scripture, perhaps, the most, the, the, the attribute that God is most identified with is the attribute of holiness. 
The son will call his father, the holy father. The father will call his son, his holy son. They will refer to their spirit as the Holy Spirit. The unity of the Godhead is called the Holy Trinity. The word of God is the Holy Bible. The name of God is his holy name. His dwelling is his holy temple. His people are his holy nation. And his day is the Holy Sabbath. All of them talking about the holiness of God. In heaven, the angels and the elders and the four living creatures, you remember that in uh, Revelations. They are all crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. Holy, holy, holy is the one who is seated on the throne. They do not cry out, love, love, love is the Lamb of God. Or wise, wise, wise. Or good, good, good. They talk about holy, holy, holy. Almost to tell us that this is perhaps the attribute that most identifies who God is in the heavens. Consider when God appears to his people in old. See Moses, for example. Moses sees this burning bush and he draws near and he's wondering why is it not being consumed. And a voice comes from the, uh, from the bush and says, Moses, come no further. Do not take another step. For the ground you are standing on is holy ground. And he's told, remove your sandals. And immediately we see Moses falling down in worship to God. Think about Joshua. He comes and he finds this commander of the Lord's army. He's just about to go and take Jericho. So the tension is high. The armies are ready. Everyone is sharpening their sword. And then he sees this commander who has a sword that is drawn. And he draws near. And he asks, are you for us or against us? Of course, now this is, uh, if you are not for us, then we are going to have something here. And then he says, I'm neither. Neither for you nor against you. But as commander of the Lord's armies, I stand. And immediately, immediately, Joshua falls to the ground, removes his shoes, because he knows that he is standing on holy ground. Do you see? How God identifies with his holiness. But perhaps the most dramatic of all is the conversion of Isaiah. The call of Isaiah to the ministry. We read this account in Isaiah's uh, words, uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. And I'd like us to just uh, come there a little bit as we consider the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. This is what the Lord, the, God, uh, the Word of God says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. We've been singing about this uh, during the worship time that we had earlier. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphs. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, 
with a live coal in his hand, which had been taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This is a description of the call of Isaiah. So Isaiah is a young man in Israel at this time. Something dramatic has happened. It is the death of Uzziah. Some of us might not appreciate what that was to Israel. Isaiah had ruled Israel for 52 years. No, some, some of you are not even 52. Okay, let me say most of us here are not 52. But for 52 years, Uzziah had ruled Israel. They knew no other king. This was the only king that they ever had. Others had been born and grew up until now, never having any other king. 50 years. One king. He was the source of all prosperity for Israel. They looked at him as Baba Wataifa. Surely. Who else now? He's, he has always been king. It's all, uh, uh, I might talk about a neighboring country that we have where the, the king is, is in, the, who else can be king really? It almost feels like this is what it has always been. And for him, luckily, he was a good king. For the most part, he brought a lot of prosperity to Israel. Until the end of his life, when he enters the temple of the Lord, because his heart had become proud, and he put incense on the, uh, on the, uh, on the censers, and he came to burn incense before the Lord. And the priests were like, Uzziah, please don't do this. Why, 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 why now? But Uzziah's heart, the Bible says, was conceit. He had risen to power and he had thought, I am king. I have been king. Perhaps I will always be king. This is Israel. This is my place. I will burn incense. And they told him, that is the work of the priest. Stop. And the Bible says that when he held the censers, leprosy broke out from the middle of his head. Immediately. And Uzziah dies of this leprosy. Now, here is the young man, Isaiah. And the whole country is devastated. They have lost Baba Wataifa. It almost reminds me what my grandmother was narrating to me when Kenyatta died. And almost the broadcasts, uh, KBC has announced that uh, the, the president has died. 1979. And you don't know what to do. You almost feel like, okay, now, do we call the Wazungus to pick us from here again? Because now, what do we do? Like, the one guy we knew would carry this country, he's the father of the nation, is dead. That kind of devastation is what we are seeing at the point of the call of Isaiah. Now, the young man comes to the temple, perhaps as a ritual. They used to go to the temple to pray. Maybe he is just going to offer his sacrifices. Not knowing that the Lord had something in store for him. Not knowing that this past will be the most significant time of his life. And this is what he says, that the Isaiah sees the Lord. I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted, and his robe filled the temple. The seraphs were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now, in Jewish literature, unlike English, if you, want, if you want to make emphasis of something in English, you put bold on it. 
Uh, if you want to perhaps go a little further, you underline it. If, if you think that someone might just miss it, you highlight it with a different color. It's, it's shouting. Uh, and you can almost tell, how can you not see that I have underlined it? I have boldened it. I have highlighted it. That is how we create emphasis in our writing. In Jewish literature, when you want to highlight something, if you want to magnify it, you repeat it. That's why Jesus will say, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Truly, truly, I say unto you. Then you are told, he, he's actually saying, this is something you must pay attention to. Uh, this is not a thing that you gloss over. If you forget anything, this you cannot afford to forget. So repetition here is not necessarily being used even to magnify what the author is saying, but perhaps to raise the importance. But perhaps to show you how superior what he's saying is. He is graduating it to a degree higher. He's saying, holy is the Lord. No, you didn't hear me. Holier is the Lord. Uh-uh, not just holy and holier. He is the holiest, if you would say. Three times he repeats, holy Holy, holy. And they are calling to one another constantly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He is perfectly holy. There is no one who is holier like him. He, no one can come even to close to that kind of holiness. No one can even taint that holiness. That is our God. Holiest of all. Now, the root word, holy does not necessarily mean what we understand it to be a moral purity only. Even though that is what we are mostly accustomed to. When we hear holy, we are thinking about morally pure, without sin. The root word, in essence, means separate, set apart. Holy is something that is different. Holy is something that is holy other. Something that has been consecrated. Something that has been set apart from what is profane, from what is common, from what is secular, from what is unclean. Earlier on in my life, growing up in Chago, we had a lot of uh, karais running around. Because karais were used for everything. If you want to feed the dog, you put some food in the karai. If you want to... What? Uh, remove dust from uh, your shoes, you put uh, in the karai. If you want to wash the pavements, and the, you put water in a karai. We, we didn't have mops and yeah, yeah, it's all, it was our zoom. But one karai was separate in our home. The karai for showering. Now, if you want your mother to kill you, Try to use that karai for profane things, secular things like washing the pavements. Or No, that would not be accepted. My wife tells me that in her home it was a sufuria. Kulikuwa na sufuria ya chai. Aki mamako akikupata, ukipikia ugali kwa hiyo sufuria. She will live and faint fast because she does not understand how can Sufuria Chai Kukugali separate 
it still looks the same, but it has been separated for some certain purpose. These are the two definitions that now we can see in the holiness of God. One, that God is holy in the sense that he has been separated from his creation. This is God. This is his creation. Because he is separate from his creation, we call him holy. In a relational sense, this and this, the relationship is different. This is the creator, this is the created. This is holy because it is different. Utterly unique from the other. That is holiness in the first definition. Secondly, holiness is that God is separated from sin. He is away from sin. He is untouched by sin. When it comes to the moral and ethical values, he is completely perfect. He is upright in all his ways. He is morally of a high standing. He can never sin. That is holiness of God in the second way. Let's consider the first way, which is God's holiness in the sense that he is utterly different from his creation. The angels are crying to each other, holy, holy, holy. Not, not necessarily to mean, oh, without sin, without sin, without sin, is the Lord Almighty. Uh-uh. They are not saying to one another, morally upright, ethically right, is the Lord Almighty. No, because they don't even know what sin is. Angels are not sinful as we are. But they are talking about his separatedness, his distinctiveness. He is utterly different from us angels. He is utterly different from his creation. He's utterly different from man. He's utterly different from anything that we know. He is a holy, holy, holy God. Listen to what Isaiah says. That in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The word Lord there is Adonai. Adonai, the ruler of all that is living, the controller of all things, the Lord of hosts, the master of all, the sovereign. That is what Adonai means. And Isaiah chooses it rightly for this context. That I saw the Lord. I saw Adonai, the ruler. At this point, remember, Uzziah has died. The ruler of Israel is dead. He who they thought would rule Israel forever. He who has led them through prosperity for 52 years is dead. And the Bible says that I saw Adonai. I saw the true ruler. The one who really does rule. Ah, leave alone Uzziah. I'm talking about the guy. I saw Adonai sitting on his throne. Imagine... The whole country is held a skelter, wondering what shall it be? Will our enemies take advantage of this? Will they come for us? What, what will it be about our economy? Will, will things go down? Will, will our shilling lose value? What, what? They are in confusion. But when Isaiah sees Adonai, Adonai is not standing up. He's not passing around wondering, okay, uh, yeah. Now what, what will happen to this guy? He is seated. He is seated as he has always been. Nothing has changed. The true ruler of Israel is not perturbed, worried. Oh, that Isaiah, that Uzziah has died. No, he is unmoved. 
He is on his throne as he has always been. The throne, the symbol of power, the symbol of rule and dominion. He is seated on a throne. Some of you may have an idea of what a throne looks like. I have heard that there's a movie called uh, Game of Thrones. Have you heard? So some of you may say, oh, I have an idea what thrones are. But let me tell you a bit more vivid description of what a throne looks like. You'll find it in Chronicles with uh, the King Solomon. Then after King Solomon had built the temple of the Lord, he built himself a palace. And there he placed a throne for, his, for himself. It says that it had six steps. And they were laced with gold. And there were two lions that had been sculptured at the entrance towards his throne. Six steps raised high. All you minions as you come, I can see you from far. Then you have to know who is the king. You am the king and you are not. As you see him seated on his throne, perhaps with his hands somehow to represent the kind of authority and power and rule and dominion that he has. That is the kind of image that you see of a throne. My friend, God in the vision of Isaiah is seated on his throne. Ah, Revelation chapter 20 says it's a great white throne. Uh, uh, brilliant throne. It's not like the kind of thrones where we see now, well, our president, uh, when he goes to um, public occasions, you see the, you know the kachia for the president. Yeah? It has some arms, uh, carved nini, is antique. Uh, you can tell it has the coat of arms there, nini. And you know this is a special chair for the, uh, for the president. Oh, in olden times, it may be made of wood like any other. But the way it is raised, the way it is placed, you will know that this is the throne because it belongs to the sovereign ruler. In Isaiah's time, he says that the throne was high and lifted up. Uh -uh. It's the height of the throne. If, I, if Solomon had six steps to it, he says that God's throne is high and lifted up. It's not just high. It's both high and lifted up. Isaiah 66 will say, the heavens are your throne. Do you know how high the heavens are? That is how high the throne of God is. If there is any ruler who thinks they can compare to the height of the throne of God, no, none can. Because he's at the highest place. If height is what, what shows the sovereignty and the rule and the power, then God's throne is at the highest this is our God. How lifted, how high, how brilliant and majestic he must be then. And then Isaiah says that the train of his robe filled the temple. And you'd wonder, okay, so what about the train? Let me tell you, in old times, the king, you know, the, the, the robe of the king, some of, some of our African leaders would wear the, what is it, Ngozi uh, Achui, or uh, uh, the, the head of a lion, that still have a head. The head is still attached to the, to the Ngozi. Yeah? To show, ah, conquer. You know, I'm the one who kills lions. And, and that would become the pride. In olden times, the length of the, of the robe would tell how, how much splendor the king has. If you have a bit more tombs, then you can afford a longer fabric. 
And then fabric was not easy to come by. However long the robe is, representing how much splendor, how much power, how much prosperity the king has. Listen to the king of heaven. Isaiah sees him and his robe fills the temple. How long must that robe be? How majestic must that king be? How prosperous must he be then? He whose robe fills the temple. In fact, there is no room left. There's no other sovereign that can ever occupy the place of the king. He alone in the temple stands. He fills the whole place. He is holy other. He stands alone. He is all in all. He dominates. He is a sovereign. Utterly unique. Our God is far much superior than all things. He is incomparable. Isaiah chapter 2 will say there is no one like our God. Exodus 15 will say, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. He is magnificent and highly exalted. Isaiah 40 verse 25. He says, To whom shall you liken me? Who is my equal? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is inevitably, no one, none can equate to our God. This is your God, Mamlaka, holy and separate. Let's go back to Isaiah. He says, above him were the seraphs. These six-winged guys. Six wings. With some wings, they cover their eyes. With some wings, they are covering their feet. Or if you like, their body. And with some two wings, they are flying. And remember, God does not create any vestigial organs, if you would say. You remember, as you learned about insects and as you learned about fish, and have you ever seen a fin on a fish that has no use? All of them, as we were being described to in our high school education, every fin has its purpose why it exists. The angels are created with six wings. These seraphs, two, they cover their faces. Perhaps because of the brilliance of the person who is seated on the throne, that they cannot gaze directly at him who shines brighter than the sun. With two, they are covering their nakedness, their bodies, that their creatureliness, their weakness might not be exposed before him who sits on the throne. And with two, they fly, waiting orders. That he should tell them where to dart and go and do his bidding. This is our God, friends. Day and night they are calling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And this is perhaps the best way we can see how to respond to the Holy One. The one who is utterly unique. How must you and I respond to this kind of holiness? So I want to submit two things. How we can relate with a God who is this unique, this different from us. First, we must revere the name of God. The name we sing, the name of Jesus, higher than other names. Yes, we must treat that name as holy. You see, the worship of the angels is not just casual. 
It's not a casual kind of worship. It is not lacking passion and zeal. In their declaration of the holiness of God, you can tell that they are really, really enthusiastic about their worship. Go and read in Revelation chapter 4 how they fall to their heads, they cast their crowns. These guys are always worshiping the Lord in reverence. When God gave the commandments, the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 22, Moses, let me ask, if you are a king of a country like today, let's, let's imagine we made you a king today, or uh, we gave you this country to run, who among you would include among his Ten Commandments Ten commandments in the Constitution, if you are only allowed to give ten. One that says that you shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. It's ridiculous. You're almost, you're almost thinking that's a wasted commandment. Like, you only have ten chances and you, you make one. You may say, do not kill. That one is reasonable. I say, surely, you shouldn't kill. Do not steal. Ah, that's good. But do not... Mention the name of the Lord in vain. See how God is passionate about his holiness. When Jesus is teaching us how to pray, Matthew chapter 6, he says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. He does not say, hallowed is your name. Even though we all know that hallowed Hallowed is holy, righteous, treated and treated as different and separate, is his name. We know that hallowed is his name, but he says, hallowed be your name. It's the first petition. When it comes to the Lord's Prayer, that is the first petition. That the name of the Lord would be treated among us as holy. I wonder, have you lost the reverence for God's name? In a culture that we live in where the name of God is used as a common curse word, where, where, where the name of Jesus is invoked as just a casual uh, curse, curse word, treated as profane or secular, have you lost reverence of the name of God? Until God's name is honored in our lips, it shall not be honored in our hearts. Secondly, I want us to worship the Lord in reverence. You see, the people of old, every time someone would meet with the Lord, the first intuition, it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. They just fall to the ground and start worshipping. It's not even, at it's, it's just, oh, the Lord, uh, fall down to the ground. Daniel will say, I fell down as though dead. John in Patmos sees the Lord, oh, it's, it's, it's like that is the natural response to the holiness of God. When it comes to service, for example, do we really truly regard the worship of God as holy? Do we worship him as a holy God? Is it, has he become just another guy in the streets for us? A man I like called L.C. Sproul will say that in our age there has been an eclipse of God. The, the glory of God, the, the holiness of God has been eclipsed 
Almost we cannot see him anymore. Okay, let, let me go a bit further and ask. Do you regard God's word? Do you regard the Holy Sabbath? Do you regard his holy temple? When you come to Sunday, Sunday worship, do you come to worship and to meet with the Holy God? Or do you come to meet with guys? Is it a human relationship we come to satisfy? Or is it an audience of a holy God? When we come, do we only come reflecting on our needs and come and lay them at his feet? Or do we come in reverence knowing who we are coming before? Our music, gospel music in this country right now has just become, and you're wondering, how is that gospel music? How is that declaring the glories of God? Sunday has become game day for most countries. The day is that we watch game. And sometimes you can even opt and say, ah, Leo, I won't go to service. So, you know, I have a game to catch. Oh, oh ah, man, this service, uh, I need to get on that game. And, and sometimes you even look at the highlights uh, in service, hey, just to keep uh, track with the numbers. In the morning when you're preparing, do you hurry and tell everyone, hurry up. You know the way our parents used to hurry us up? To go to the house of the Lord in time. Because I'm meeting a holy and reverent God. Or do you take your sweet time and come 40 minutes later after service and you say, ah, I've only missed worship. Perhaps because you do not know the kind of God that you're coming to. Today we've served communion. Is that just bread and juice? Do you reflect on your sin, truly, as Rev. Moura is standing here and saying, okay, I want you guys to reflect on your sins. Are you, are you deeply grieved in sorrow and repentance because of your sin? Because you know that God is holy. Do you rejoice because of what God has done on the cross through Christ? Moses will be told, this is holy ground. When you come here on the Sabbath, this is holy ground. Treat it as holy. Psalms 99 will tell us, praise his great and awesome name. Worship him in his, at his footstool. Exalt him because he is a holy God. Let's go back to Isaiah. So we started with the first definition, which is God is separate, holy other, different from us, separated from his creation. Secondly, Isaiah here in verse 5 will say, Woe is me. I am dead. I am finished. I am undone. I am destroyed. Why? Because my eyes have seen the Lord. Why? Because I am an unclean person. God is completely cut out from anything sinful. Between God and sin, there is no correlation. When Adam and Eve sinned, he tells them, out of my garden. Like, like literally, to be in the presence of God and you are sinful, it will consume you, it will kill you, it will finish you. He, he is not touched by sin. He is pure. 
He, he destroys anything sinful. Think about Mount Sinai. It is trembling. The people of Israel have been told by Moses, gather here, I'm going to go and get the Ten Commandments. So you guys gather around the mountain and meet your God. And there's rumbling and there's smoke and, oh my goodness, fierce. And he says, let no one come to the mountain. Let no one even touch the mountain. If you do, then you will die. Oh, our God is a holy God. The holy of holies. The place where the Israelites could never come into. Even the priest only came once a year on the Day of Atonement. Because our God is a holy God. He is untouched by sin. To see him is to be ruined, is to be destroyed, is to be disfigured. When you are with your fellow sinners, you might think, oh, yeah, I'm doing okay. Yeah, yeah over and above. You'd give me a nine. Oh, but come in the presence of the Holy God. Ah, his brilliance, his light. Ah, my goodness. Then we see ourselves for what we really are. And Isaiah proclaims, I am unclean. You know, when people had leprosy in Israel, that's what they would do. You shout in the streets as you walk, unclean, unclean, unclean. Because if you are unclean and you touch someone, then that person becomes unclean also. Isaiah looks at himself and says, I am unclean. As in compared to God, uh, actually even the people I live around are unclean. And especially my lips. And this is about his call. These lips that will be proclaiming the word of God every day telling people who God is. Oh, I am ruined. But the question is, is Isaiah ruined? Was he destroyed? Was he completely done away with? This God who takes no pleasure in sin. This God who is not even neutral about sin. He hates sin. He revolts sin. Him who there is no darkness. He who says he committed no sin in Jesus. Will Isaiah be destroyed? This is what he says. One of the seraphs flies. Comes to the altar. Picks up a live coal. I don't know what a live coal looks like. But somehow it's alive. From the altar of the Lord. Picks it with tongues. Comes to where his eyes and puts it on his lips. Oh, perhaps you can even feel the burning on Isaiah's lips. And he says, your sin has been atoned for. Your guilt has been taken away. Friends, how is it that we can become holy? Listen to this. In Israel... If something unclean touched someone clean, immediately the someone who was clean becomes unclean. But the drama here is that the call that has been picked from the altar of the Lord, when he touches Isaiah, Isaiah does not make the call unclean. What happens is the opposite. The call makes Isaiah clean. This is the drama that we see with Jesus Christ. He comes into the world and he finds people who have leprosy, people who have sin, people, people who are tax collectors. He, looked, he finds Samaritans and the blind and the lame. 
And he's not afraid to touch them. And he comes to Batmaiah and says, okay. Can you see? Oh yeah, I can see. Yet Jesus himself doesn't, is not made unclean. Because the touch of God, he who is holy, 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 is not defiled by sin. He himself does away with sin. Jesus has become that call for us. The one that was taken from the altar. You know the altar is a place of sacrifice, right? It's where sacrifices were made. Jesus becomes the sacrifice. The one who is sacrificed on the altar for us. So that out of him, all of us who have the touch of Christ, all of us who have a relationship with him, can be declared holy. In fact, he calls us saints. He calls us holy people. He says, you are a holy nation. A people belonging to God. Holy. You have been declared holy. Not because you are morally pure. God knows that uh, we sin. But because we have the touch of God on us. The way Isaiah had the touch of God. Through that call from the altar. That made him clean. You see the sacrifice of goats and bulls could never take away sin. Only Jesus was a sufficient substitute for this. John chapter 1 tells us, Behold the Lamb of God. Who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. Second Corinthians will tell us that God made him who had no sin to become sin. So that we may become the righteousness of God. No wonder Isaiah is not ruined. No wonder he's not undone. No wonder he still continues to live even after seeing the Lord because his sins have been atoned for. Same way your sins and mine are atoned for. What must we do then? Now that our sins have been atoned for, now that you are declared holy people, what do you do? Two things as I come to a close. First, Believer. First Peter chapter 1 verse 15 will tell us, Be holy as your Lord is holy. As he who called you is holy, be holy. But Peter, you know, we are already holy. Jesus has already made us holy. Live out what you already are. You are already holy? Good. Live out what you already are. Sometimes when you come here and you see uh, Maura joining a couple, and he says, oh, no, what the Lord has declared to be one, let no one put us under. But those of us who have been married for any amount of time, you know that that kind of oneness does not come in a day. It's not his declaration that really makes you one. There is a journey to walk, a work every day to do, until the oneness in your marriage starts to manifest. God has declared you holy. He expects you to act like the holy person that you are. Obedience is the way we live out our holiness. Seek God's will. Do God's will. That is what it means when we are told, be holy as the Lord is holy. Remember Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Only those ones who do the will of the Father. 
It's not just enough for you to be declared holy by believing in Jesus Christ. No, after which God expects that you would live out this kind of holiness. Secondly, believer, how can you obey the will of the one who you do not know? John chapter 17, verse 16 says, Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. This is Jesus praying for his church. And he says, Jesus, God, please sanctify these guys with your word because your word is truth. The way that me and you as a believer really become holy is through the word of God. It is the one that washes us of our sin. Are you struggling with sin, for example? There is power for you in the word of God. David will say, your word I have hidden in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. There is power to overcome sin, to be holy in God's word. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 will say that many have come and led you astray. There are many guys who have appeared and come up with clever stories to lead you astray. Because you do not know the word of God. Believer, first, you must live in obedience. But secondly, you must know that which you must obey. Invest yourself in God's word. God has ordained that through his word you will be made perfect. You will be made holy. Do you know God's word? God the Father is committed to your holy. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 10. He says that through discipline he ensures his sons are becoming holy. Christ is committed to your holiness. He says, do the washing of the waters of his word. Ephesians chapter 5. He is making you holy. The Holy Spirit is committed to your holiness. Through conviction of sin, through the reminding of the will of God in your heart, he is committed to your holiness. John chapter 14. He is doing that. Are you committed to your holiness? Are you working on your holiness? Finally, as I finish, you who is an unbeliever, you don't know the Lord. And you hear these things that we sing, oh, holiness of God, oh, Sujinini. And you're wondering, ah, man, how, how is this? Let me tell you, there is no way you can be holy apart from God. Apart from the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross, you are ruined. You see, when Isaiah says, I am ruined, you should perhaps be crying out the same thing. I am ruined even now because without Christ, on that day when you stand before the judgment seat of God, you will be utterly destroyed. The Holy One who sits on the throne must punish sin. He must crush rebellion. Evil must be destroyed. Woe unto you if you are to stand there without being covered with the blood of Christ, without the righteous one of Israel, Jesus, having had his touch on you, otherwise unclean you are, undone you will be. Let us pray. Father, what a privilege it is that we can come week after another before your presence, your holy presence. This was unheard of in old. 
How could we, unclean people, approach such a holy God? But you have made a way, O God, for us through Christ. And for that we rejoice. To know that we who are supposed to be ruined and destroyed have been spared on account of you. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray for those among us who may not know you, who Father still trust in their own works to justify them. Remind them, O oh God, that without you, they are utterly destroyed. And that, Father, they may run to you, you alone who is able to purge sin, you alone who is able to make us holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.